Welcome, everyone, to DEI After Five, the show that focuses on topics across diversity, equity, and inclusion with some of the brightest minds in the industry. Here's your hostess, inclusive culture curator and coach, Sasha Thompson. Hey, everyone, and welcome to this episode of DEI After Five. You know, as I've been doing this work, I have come across so many practitioners that are passionate and excited and really wanting to dive in. But oftentimes, it's really based on kind of their personal experiences. And so with that, there comes a lens that sometimes we miss out on. Um, And what I've started to hear or started to recognize is in some instances, people with great intentions may not have the best impact, right? And so they're starting to create spaces where instead of making it inclusive, they're causing some harm. And so I want to kind of unpack some of that conversation today um, with my guest, who is Young Chen, and wanting to um, really talk about kind of harm reduction and what it looks like to be a practitioner that's constantly learning and growing in this space. So welcome. How are you today? Hey, doing okay. Just getting back from some travel. So uh, so oh. a little groggy, but um, but yeah, excited to be here. Nice, nice. So for those that may not know you, um, I've come across you on LinkedIn and some other social media spaces. Um, but for those that may not be in those spaces, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Young? Yeah, I got to get better at this. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I usually just open with, I yell a lot on LinkedIn. Um, I, I come from a tech background um, and have built uh, you know, organizations and, and startups. Um, and I take a lot of that organizational development and uh, incentive-based uh, process structure into DEI work. Um, I started leaning more into DEI um, in the past few years as I started to truly grow into my own Asian identity. Um, many Asians, uh, Asian Americans end up starting our identity formation a little late. I started at 30 when I went to Taipei and went to Asia and felt like a whole human being for the first time. Um, so that journey has kind of like followed me and, um, and pushed me more into doing inclusion work. Um, and so now I do uh, strategy consulting as well as coaching, both for uh, you know on the on the impact side for uh, leaders and executives um, focused on inclusion, and then I also do uh, coaching for marginalized people to help offset that gap because marginalized people tend to not have access to the same opportunities and organic mentorship paths that uh, that you know the, the the dominating majority does. Wow, you know. There was something you said just now that made me like, oh, question, question, question um, <laughs> around, you know, not fully getting into your identity until in your 30s. And I want you to talk about that a little bit, because I think it is something that a lot of Asian Americans in particular um, deal with. And, you know, part of that is, again, tied to the model minority myth and you know all of that but i want to hear from you because it's something that um i don't think a lot of people realize is part of that fabric yeah i mean to to be asian american in this country um is is 
oftentimes to be fairly invisible, um, even in our own spaces, even in our own families, even in, in our own perceptions of ourselves. And um, what, one thing I guess I didn't mention is, is I, I also founded and, and built a, an Asian community organization here in Denver called the Asian Collective. Um, and um, so I consider myself a, something of a repository of Asian American experiences because so many have been shared with me in this work. Um, you know, the, I can speak to patterns and I can speak to my own experience, right? Mm -hmm. um, so for me, um, and I think for a lot of people that are socialized to be men um, and, and grow up Asian in this country, um, I really swung the pendulum the other way. I really did my best to emulate whiteness. And there's a lot, a lot there in terms of the fact that most of us are immigrants and first and early generation immigrants um, in particular, because we've been legally excluded from this country um, for the most of this country's existence. Mm -hmm. um, so we also have that immigrant mentality where a lot of our parents um, force us to assimilate or push us to assimilate and to you know reject our our own cultures our heritage our own languages and so there's a lot of different factors that that come into separating asians and asian americans from asianness and a lot of incentives that 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 um prevent us from from doing so and things that disincentivize us from being asian so many people have shared with me the experience of um just not wanting to be perceived as asian not wanting to be associated with asians and i can definitely speak to that from my own experience growing up of not wanting to be seen as associated with the other Asians in school. Mm. Um, because I, well, I'm a, I'm one of you. I'm an American. And in, t in my own definition of American, I am excluded. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, for me, the thing that jarred me was, was going to Taipei when my dad got sick um, and he was living in Taipei. So I went to go visit him and as a product, went to Asia for the first time in my life, went to my home country, learned my language being spoken and felt safe for the first time. I, I talk about denominators a lot and mm -hmm. um, my denominator, my capacity for living and for being and for existing grew exponentially. Um, I thought that I was at the ceiling. I thought that I was living a full life in America. And when I was in a place where chairs were made for me, mm -hmm. shopping was not a body dysmorphic experience because clothes were made for me, where mm -hmm. I understood that I can walk around and nobody's going to call me a chink. And if some expat does it, he's going to get his ass beat. Mm -hmm. um, understanding that I was fully a human being in that society, um, it makes it really difficult to come back to America where I am a sub-citizen, even in many DEI spaces where people perceive me and especially because of white incentives and the way that white power interacts with DEI, um, white people treat me as a racial peer and mm -hmm. white explain racism to me, right? It's one of the reasons that I avoid many activism spaces. Um, so that's a, it's just a, such a common experience and so many of us struggle with that journey because of all the things that were fed, right? Yeah. Um, we, we, we weren't writing our own stories. Everything written um, or, or every media that we consume about Asians was written by white people. Like look at Avatar, The Last Airbender, which was made by three white weeps, right? Yeah. The word honor is used a hundred times and I don't even know how to say honor in Chinese. <laughs> yeah. You know, as I'm listening to you and your story, um, yesterday, day before, my days are blending together. <laughs> I was reading a little piece on Joanna Gaines and I'm a huge HGTV fan. <laughs> yeah, if somebody could just come in and help me redecorate. Yeah, I know life. Right, <laughs> second life. Um, but she has a book, you know, that's out and part of her story has been well, and she has a podcast. And I, I want to say that the last episode of that podcast was her apologizing to her mother for not accepting the Korean side of herself. Ugh. And yeah. how um, she, almost everything that you're saying, right? She wanted to 
disregard that part of her because she wanted to fit in and she knew she didn't fit in because she looked different, but she wanted to just kind of shed that. And it wasn't until she was older and she spent time in New York and Koreatown where she saw people that looked like her. And I mean, everything that you're saying is exactly what she kind of laid out. And then now that she has children and they are holding on to their quarter Korean-ness so much more so than she did that it's now coming back to her like the beauty of all of that makes her who she is. And so as you were talking, it was just, I was hearing her voice saying the same thing. And again, I grew up with a lot of um, friends that were half Asian, you know, either Filipino or Korean or Chinese and something else, Yeah, right? Black, white, uh, Latino, whatever it was. Um, And that grappling of, identity and what you hold on to or what you grasp onto. Um, and then fast forward again, folks that are in their thirties or, or older now realizing the duality of being able to live in both cultures and being okay with that. Even if the cultures aren't fully embracing that. There's, there's so much to unpack that there. And like, and I think there's also a really good segue into our topic. Um, but I'd, I'd like to hit two points real quick. You know, so, so Joanna Gaines is, is, um, is mixed race, right? She's Asian yeah. and white. Yep. Um, you know, I think, I think something worth noting there is, um, the ways that we can be exclusionary even within um, mm-hmm. identity-based communities, right? And so one of the things that I think we, we really saw a need for in Denver, because Denver's super white, <laughs> um, was one Asian community, right? A, a lot of other racialized communities um, have done the work. Y'all have done the work. You have BET. You have mm-hmm. Will Smith. You've, you've created the spaces for yourselves. We haven't done that. And that's work that we have to do and that, and that we really have to do for ourselves because no one's going to do it for us. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, in, in Denver, we saw a need to build Asian community because a lot of people not only weren't seeking it out, they didn't understand that, that they needed it or that they wanted it, which is fine. Right. Because a lot of us just live our kind of automatic lives on the, yeah. on the tracks that are put in front of us. Um, but there's also a need for inclusive Asian spaces because there are Asian communities in Denver, but they tend to be extremely East Asian, extremely cisgender male, um, and they tend to be anti-Black. They mm-hmm. tend to be, and, and this is not to say like paint with, with a large brush, but these are patterns, right? And especially in the established communities that I've seen, not, at, not just in Denver, but in other locales as well. Um, and so we set out to create something more inclusive because, hey, I can't imagine um, the experience of being mixed race Asian, part white, and not fitting into white society because you look Asian, mm-hmm. and then going into and seeking Asian community and being told that you're too white. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we hear so much, or we've heard, I'm no longer involved, but we've heard so much from from mixed race, part white Asians is that they didn't really have a space um, along with, you know, queer Asians, cutie pock, um, mixed race Asians uh, who didn't feel safe because they're part black in Asian communities as well. And so I think there's so much to be done there in terms of inclusion, in terms of harm reduction as well, when we invite people into these spaces that are supposed to be inclusive, but haven't managed the ways that we exclude within those communities themselves, including DEI. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, perfect segue, because 
part of this challenge and part of this work is this constant learning, not just of the terms and what's happening out there, but how we show up in these spaces and how we take up space in these spaces as well too, right? Because I've come across um, several practitioners that are very bold and brash kind of in their space, not necessarily being mindful of, okay, well, who could you be offending or how could yeah. that land on someone else that's marginalized or may have a different experience? And so it's part of like, how do you, um, the phrase that comes to my mind is like, how do you constantly check yourself, right? Like, how do you stay in this mode of, I want to step into this space. I want to make a bold statement. At the same time, I need to be mindful of who I am, where I am, and where I am in my journey. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know, as a consultant, as a tech person, I love going back to problem statements, right? People come to me, they ask for a workshop, and I'm like, what do you want that workshop for? Oh, we want to solve this problem. Is a workshop the best way to solve that? Or are there other solutions for that problem right. statement? And so when I think about the problem statement for the dynamic that you're describing, I think there's a lot of different... Um, reasons that people get into DEI um, and get into activism and identity-based advocacy. And, and a lot of those incentives are personal validation, um, feeling like a, 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 a whole human being, feeling like an authority on topics with which you live, right? And, mm -hmm. and so I think a lot about incentives, um, especially in team building, especially in organizational development, um, people are always going to behave how they're incentivized. Um, and when I think about the incentives for DEI work, and especially DEI work post-2020, mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of competing incentives with the work itself, right? The, the work itself should be focused, in my opinion, on uplifting marginalized communities, shifting uh, systems and architecture within our society to create more equitable landscapes, opportunity landscapes, and outcomes for marginalized people. The focus should be on marginalized people. Mm -hmm. Keyword plural people, right? Not just yeah. me and what I want in my Asian ass self, right? Are we allowed to curse? Oh, yeah, go for it. Okay. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> I tend to curse a lot. Um, so, so when we think about the, the the things that cause people to get into this work, um, and we think about the the people who get into this work because they are, or, or who are themselves marginalized, um, I'll, I'll, I'll speak to myself, I am told constantly that I don't experience racism. I am told constantly mm -hmm. that I don't exist, uh, especially as a trans person. So when I got on stage at an Asian rally, and I'm yelling about Asian-ness, and I'm speaking my truth, and the entire crowd is applauding, I'm going from an environment where I am constantly gaslit, constantly told that nothing I know is real, that none of my experience is real, to mm -hmm. pure validation. And not just validation, validation on a stage where people mm -hmm. are looking at me as an authority. And when I do this work, when I yell on LinkedIn, I carry and wield a sense of authority that people are looking to. And that carries with it a sense of responsibility in making sure that my communications, that the things that I say, especially loudly, um, are qualified. And I don't mean that I'm qualified to say it. I mean that the statement is qualified. Right. Rather than saying Asians experience late identity journeys, I can say 
I experienced a late identity journey as an Asian, as an Asian American leader who has talked with many other Asian Americans, I see that as a pattern, right? That's a qualified statement saying that, that it's, it's not a blanket statement. I'm not speaking for, for anyone else. I'm speaking to my experience and the patterns that I'm noticing and identifying why I have specific insight into those patterns because of my exposure to the Asian American community. Um, so I think when we look at the ways that people behave in this work, especially as they're getting into it, especially as they're forming their own identities, both professionally as practitioners, but also in their own journeys, because we're all on a journey, mm -hmm. um, there's a specific need to be cautious. Um, and there's a specific need to be incredibly self-reflective to understand like, oh, this is what that feels like. This is what it feels like when I'm on that stage. If I keep seeking that, and if I'm going after those dopamine hits, that can be pretty addictive and that can create a false incentive to the work that I'm actually attempting to do, which is uplifting Asians and building Asian community here in Denver. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and the phrase that came to my mind as you were speaking, especially around kind of the experiencing of racism um, was oppression Olympics. Right. Um, and, you know, I'm more oppressed than you are. And OK, every, we're all we're if you're from a marginalized community, you're oppressed period, right? Let's let's put right. that out there. Um, your intersection of identity may cause some, create some unique oppressions that others may or may not experience, right? So, you know, I kind of want to take that off the table because it's not a comparison of oppressions, but I think what is important and, and something that you said was how we experience racism can look different and feel different based on honestly our race right like yeah. what it may look like for me may look very different for you but that's not to say that we're not both experiencing racism um because it's not this just one thing and we right. all know that and we all talk about that and i think that's part of excuse me the challenge in this work is especially um when we talk about anti-racist work, anti-Black work, anti-Asian work, you know, anti-Semitic, whatever it is, um, there's a certain lens that goes into that. But if you step back to, okay, let's just talk about anti-racism across the board and the spectrum of what that looks like, I think it could be much more impactful. And to your point, we can then have more voices talking about their experiences in that space. Right. It's not one authority figure yeah. talking about this is what racism looks like because they're talking from their experience. If you and I were both on a stage, I'm sure we could both tell stories about how we've experienced it. That would be similar, but also very different. Right. Right. And on the top of that, sorry, because my mind is like, oh, yeah, no, me um, too. <laughs> but also how, um, how white supremacy shows up within marginalized communities in that same yeah. way, yeah. right? Because we perpetuate that as well too. And and we're so injected with it, right? Um, one of the things I talk about often is, is, you know, minding what we consume. Like I stopped reading white men three years ago because I realized that through K through 12, I only ever read anything written by white men. I, I had only been told that white mm. thought was real thought. And so when we kind of identify that so much of what we know was actually, if we grew up in this country, was was um, 
created by white people. I studied psychology. Every single, uh, I was told that I was studying the psychology of humans. And yet I started noticing a pattern that every single study and every single um, professor uh, that I was following um, and that I was reading about um, was a white man conducting studies on white people and specifically mm -hmm. college educated white people in, in college populations in college towns. And we were calling this human psychology um, mm -hmm. and applying it across 7 billion people. Um, so within our communities, I think we need to understand that there is significant white power even in our own spaces. Um, because we are all predisposed to follow those, not, not just the architecture, but the inner architecture that we've ingested and absorbed. Um, and when I think about DEI, and especially in this landscape, something I talk about a lot is the business of DEI, because it is now a business, it is now a marketplace, yeah. it is an ecosystem. Um, DEI has dramatically shifted, and, and for folks like yourself and, and others who have been practicing for, you know, pre-George Floyd, pre-2020, pre-pandemic, um, y'all have such an interesting perspective of having seen pre and post, right? Mm -hmm. And I would say that in today's world, um, DEI is the business of white interests and white influence. Um, DEI is a significantly high demand market now because white people were bored, <laughs> lacking a sense of self. White people are the market drivers and, 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 and make the decisions around this economy. And so- Bottom line. Right. And we have to be careful about the fact that um, in order to, for example, to sell DEI, oftentimes the, the economic buyer, the decision maker is a white person. Yep. Um, and so what are our incentives to sell our services, whether that's to make money or whether that's because we know that we can do the good work and there's a lot of people out there doing good work, yeah trainings and, and workshops and yeah. <laughs> right right like there's, there's yeah <laughs> yeah there, there's there's a, with that significant demand we also have this significant spike in suppliers right in yeah. an industry that has no regulation no standards no governing body right um which you know there's many there's much to be spoken about how those things are also you know capitalistic and, and imperialistic but anyone can be a di practitioner um anyone can put that in their linkedin title and start talking and the the unique thing about this market is our uninformed public has no idea what yeah so like yeah. i can't tell you how many dei practitioners were incredibly successful i'm always like that's a huge red flag if you're a super commercially successful dei practitioner but who have come in and just immediately misgendered me or fetishized me <laughs> and it's like, wow. Um, and, and, I, and I think that's the thing is like understanding the limitations of our perspectives in our own personal experience and then doing the work because it is our work from a continuing education perspective to at least have the foundational understanding. Yeah. You know what? And you saying that, and I tell this story all the time. Yeah. Um, one of my most memorable experiences, and it's probably what caused me the most harm and what pushed me out of corporate was um, dealing with a DEI leader who boldly said she'd never done DEI work before. <laughs> and I mean, would tell everyone, I've never done this before. I've never done this before. I don't know what I'm doing. Never done this before. Um, would put together proposals based on the work literally that Black women had put in front of her as like, hey, maybe this will help. Change a couple of words and we'll present that as her wow. own. Um, and, you know, in talking about reduction of harm, what I saw, what I saw and what I experienced was one, that lack of that internal process of how am I showing up in this work? What am I doing? 
but then also realizing I'm causing harm and I don't care because my goal or my incentive is yeah. to get promoted to the next and DEI is the easiest way for me to get there. Yeah. Right. And so when I see organizations like that, and I think because I experienced it, and when I say experienced it, hair falling out, ulcers, like it physically broke yeah. me down. Um, I'm also very cognizant of who are the DEI practitioners around that person. Because if I'm feeling harm and I'm not in that direct, you know, chain of command, what are they dealing with? Yeah. Right? They're, they're closer to the epicenter. <laughs> Yeah. You know? And so when I start thinking about, you know, harm reduction and what that looks like, and going back to even this, how do we take the commercialization of DEI and put it where it needs to be? Yes, okay, capitalism, we all got to pay bills. But at the same time, are we doing it to your point in such a way where we're causing more harm because yeah. we are screaming from the mountaintop and not necessarily screaming the right things from the mountaintop right. and pulling in money? Or are we truly doing so in a way where we are influencing changing systems? Yeah. Right. And I think that's the piece where organizations, I'm not going to even put it on practitioners. I'm going to put it on organizations that are hiring consultants. That's what they need to be looking for. Yeah. Right. Are we just hiring this person because they're popular? Yeah. They got a million views on LinkedIn or whatever it is. Or are we seeing the work that they've done and how that they how they've changed organizations? Right. Do they have testimonials? Do they have folks that okay? We're seeing how they've shifted the culture, right? And so that's kind of where when I talk, when I think about reduction of harm and capitalism and all of it, it just ties together for me. That's kind of where my mind goes. Um, so I want to hear from you because I just did a whole lot of it. <laughs> no, I, I think, um, you know, first, I just want to reinforce and validate that, that it is such a unique harm to experience marginalization in our society and then go into this work to do the good work and then to be put into a position of disempowerment within the work itself by people who hold oppressive power over us, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, my, my a, a version of that, that that I've experienced was, um, uh, I had experienced some pretty significant um, discrimination and in, in issues with an organization that I was working in. Um, a white woman had actually caused two men of color to quit naming her and citing her, but somehow retained her work, her, her job. Mm. She carried me for, um, I actually got pipped for uh, the Ooh, phrase. I got pipped too. Ooh, fun, right? Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I literally, uh, we had, we had a meeting the, uh, just before break and, and I had had the worst, uh, racialized experience of my life. It was, it was the worst race I've ever, ever experienced. I was shell shocked. I was, um, completely in a trauma response and I let her know, you know, I think this might be important, but I had a bad racial, uh, racist experience last night. Um, knowing that, uh, would you like to keep the meeting? Cause I'm okay with that, but I want to get your consent. Um, mm -hmm. or would you like to reschedule or do this asynchronously? And she complained about that, said that it made her feel so bad. Um, and hurt her feeling so much that, uh, she couldn't work that day. So I got pipped. Um, and Hold this on, woman is still out, working. Yeah. 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 That made yep. her feel bad. Yep. 
Yeah. That she yeah. couldn't work. And then that was your fault. But very classic, right? Like very classic white centering of white, white, white feelings around our experiences, right? And so, and keep in mind, two men of color had literally named her in their exit interviews. Um, and uh, uh, we had a very big name uh, chief diversity officer come in. Um, and uh, I had put out, because I wanted that role, because I was like, listen, the marginalized people in this organization come to me. I am the conduit for this feedback, which is, I think is incredibly important and, and is something worth bookmarking for a second. Um, and so I put together a plan for the org and I uh, took a meeting with this guy uh, in, in his first few weeks and um, he set up bi-weeklies with me. Um, and within the first two months, sat down and was like, hey, listen, I love this plan. I think we should build it. And I think we should do it outside of this company so that we can sell it back to the company and you and I, we can make all the money. Hmm. Like lit and and just qu quickly and very clearly demonstrated, right? Also yeah. after misgendering me, um, that uh, that his goals were were for for his own career and advancement, just like you're saying, right? Yeah. Um, not for the organization. And our work is for the people in the organization. Yeah. And I think that that kind of segues into into something that that you touched on earlier as well, which is what are the success criteria when we understand that um, that privilege creates gaps in awareness, um, we need to also understand that privilege creates gaps in evaluative uh, ability, um, mm -hmm. that white people cannot evaluate the situations of their marginalized, racially marginalized counterparts. Um, and so when we understand that white people are making those decisions, how are we grading that, right? Every single time I see best place to work, I'm like, is that the best place to work or is that the best place for work for white people? Yeah. Um, and, and so- Or did they pay make, for it? Right, and so, <laughs> and so when we look at the success criteria, oftentimes it's well, the problem statement I'm trying to solve for is I want a mascot, I want a human shield, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of practitioners that are happy to be human shields. Um, and, and, and that is not to denigrate that everyone is doing that. Some people are doing that so that they can get in and do the work. Some people are doing that because they might not have an awareness of what the goals and incentives of the executive team are. Um, there's many different situations that cause that to be an outcome. Um, but when the outcome, or when, when the success criteria isn't focused on direct feedback, direct outcomes for the marginalized people as evaluated by the marginalized people, then we're not fucking doing the work. <laughs> um. Right. And no, it's, it's, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, it's, what's the word? It's superficial, yeah. right? You're doing yeah. just enough to check the boxes, but you're not doing kind of that below the surface work that changes policies, procedures, structures, you know, the foundational stuff that right. once your stuff is done, okay, all this other stuff will continue to bubble up and be a problem. Yeah. So, absolutely. As evaluated by yeah. the marginalized people. And so I, th I think that one of the best North Star KPIs, um, key performance indicators for, yeah. uh, for uh, DEI is the delta or the difference between uh, white people's engagement surveys and everyone else. I think as, as a high level course benchmark, of course it's only on race, but race is the foundation with which we interact with a lot of these things. And it is one of the most developed foundations. Mm -hmm. um, looking at that one number, what is, the, what is the white turnover rate versus the everyone else turnover rate? Let's understand what that multiplier is. I do that for psychological yeah. safety. Yeah. So when I do evaluations within an organization or psychological safety, I do an overall number, company number, mm -hmm. and I do it by demographics. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because now we're looking at, okay, who's really not having the best experience because right. it could be skewed in a very different direction. Um, and I have one particular client that when I did it that way, they had a number of women that were leaving. So I was like, okay, let's do it by demographics. It wasn't the women that were, that had low psychological safety. Yeah. It was the people of color. Yeah. And yeah. they had so few that I had to put them all kind of together to get the number. Right. But I'm like, that's where the work needs to happen. Yeah. Those are the diagnostics that we apply to sales teams, product teams, yeah. operations teams. We don't fucking do it for, for, for DEI. And, 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 and it's always like, why? Yeah. One of the reasons I went into full-time DEI work was because I left an organization that had 4X BIPOC turnover. Right. And that is a significant indicator for the work that needs to be done. Yeah. And, and I think one of the difficult things about our work, right, is that balance between principle and theory and practice. Uh, we say it too loudly, we make it too scary. And this, it's a lot of what I coach on because most of my clients and demand comes from, on the marginalized side, comes from DEI practitioners who are being marginalized within organizations. Um, yeah. <laughs> we have to say it in the safest way possible for that white lady with all the feelings to be mm -hmm. able to actually hear it, process it, process through her emotions and then take action without getting defensive. And that is such a fine, like I have a needle to thread. Um, that, that makes our work so difficult, but is a part of our work that shouldn't be the case, but is, is right. Yeah. I call it sneaking in the vegetables. <laughs> Do you have kids? Yes. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> right. You have, to, you have to figure out. Yeah. How totally. to get it done. You know, totally. how to absolutely get it done. Um, so, you know what, I'm gonna do a little bit of a pivot. Yeah. And you know, because we both talked about just being in situations traumatized and um, the learning that's constantly going. This is work that is not easy by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. um, it takes a lot out of us, just like you were saying, right? This is a part of the work that shouldn't even be part of the work, but we got to coddle and we can sneak in the vegetables and do whatever else, tap dance. To I'm totally feeling that. <laughs> you know. <laughs> take in this information that should be common freaking sense anyway. Yeah. Um, so how do you step back and fill your cup? How do you take care of yourself when you're doing so this? My, my answer to this question is, is sometimes controversial. I yell, I yell at people. Yeah. <laughs> I truly experience schadenfreude in a way that gives me energy. Um, and I think, I think a lot of people and especially my white friends will reach out to me sometimes trying to be supportive and asking, you know, Hey, I noticed that, you know, you seem to be like yelling at a lot of people right now. Are you okay? You know, that sounds really draining. And I'm just like, listen, when I put someone in their place, that makes me feel empowered, especially mm -hmm. when I do so in a way, um, that is informative to an audience, to other people so that they can learn and where, I am identified as correct because so much of my experience um, and not just unique to me, of course, is is being told that I'm incorrect in my existence, whether as a trans person or whether as an Asian person who speaks about racism. Right. I go into an activist space and I and I talk about racism and people tell me what racism is from a white lens mm -hmm. um, as because they've read a book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, motherfucker, I, I live this. Like, yeah. I don't need you to explain it to me, right? And But but that's such a consistent experience that, um, and it's so disempowering in a specific way that um, it actually motivates me, energizes me um, to 
reclaim that power in violence. Um, and so I very much believe, and this is something that I've actually talked with a lot of, especially Asian youth around, um, because, because I see them being told that they're not allowed to speak up, stand up, and I see them self-evaluating their own dignity as violence against white people. Right, mm -hmm. which is the gaslighting that, that we're told is that for me to stand up and not and, and just stand up to a white person is is, is an aggression. Yeah. Um, and so I very much believe that violence is an appropriate response to violence. Um, and if someone calls me a chink, there's nothing I can do to a white person that is going to be commensurate. So you want to punch him, punch him. Um, but and I always qualify, of course, when I'm talking to youth, make sure that you're safe make sure that uh, you're being very conscious in your decisions. But that is an acceptable answer because we're told so often that it's not. We're, we're, I'm told mm -hmm. so often that I'm not allowed to, to yell at white ladies because like, but what about their feelings? But don't we want to get them on our side? All that tone policing bullshit, right? Um, so, so truly- about my feelings. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> um, so, so that and then um, spending time with my dog. I, I go nowhere without her. I saw her. a dog um, back there a little she's, bit Yeah, earlier. I don't know. <laughs> She's, she's been a little shy, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's something about, I don't condone violence, but you know. Sure, of course. Um, but it's something in what you said in that there's, again, the stereotype of the quiet, diminutive Asian person that's just going to take it. Yeah. And how do you reclaim your voice, your position, your power, and even though it may not be physical violence, so many people will think that you speaking up is violent, yeah. right? And so I, I appreciate how kind of a, a reframing of owning that space, yeah. right? Like standing, you know, Tara Robertson always talks about kind of what is your super, your power pose, right? And, you know, your hands on your, your hips and just that <laughs> power state stance. Yeah, And that's kind of what I envision, right? It's like, how do you make that your voice? And so when you're talking, that's kind of what I was picturing of, no, I, I want to, you know, the violence is me speaking up, me standing right. up, me saying something back. And right. yes, what you feel matters, but so what, what I feel matters too. Especially when you're the aggressor from a position of power within a society exactly. that holds you as a human being and me as not, right? Right. Um, yeah. It's it's the primary feedback that I get from Asians is is that um, when they see me do those kinds of things, especially on LinkedIn, you know, that's I think that's something that I'm kind of known for, um, that it makes them feel empowered. Um, it makes them start to think that maybe they can do that too. They can speak um, up. Yeah. And and it's why I do it. And it gives me energy to uplift my community by by being. To your point, not actually violent by standing up with dignity and 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 demonstrating to everyone, not just the Asian people, that Asians having dignity is not violence. It's just fucking dignity. Amen. Amen. And you know, I'm I'm sometimes I will say, you know, sometimes people are worthy being punched in the throat. So <laughs> it is just it is what it is. <laughs> so yeah. oh, young, thank you so much for thank joining you. Me us today and if people want to connect with you follow you where can they find you yeah um find me on linkedin um i think you've got the link up there it's just yong cheng um and uh yeah i, I i've been too lazy to put up a website but um 
if folks that are marginalized want to reach out to me for, for coaching, um, they can find links um, on my LinkedIn uh, if executives and leadership teams want to book me for strategy as well as coaching, which I think one-on-one -on -one coaching is the only uh, effective method for uh, actual change in leadership teams. I do it all the time. Yep. Right. Right. Because like you, you, you take away all the group dynamics of like, but I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to be the bad white person. You can be, you can be a bad white person. You're paying for my patients um, yeah. <laughs> in that education. So yeah. Yeah. And my find me on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and thank you all everyone for watching and being a part of this conversation. Um, please continue to follow us on YouTube, subscribe below, or you can find us on your favorite podcast platform. So thank you again. And until next time, have a good one. Thanks so much.